Construction Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here's your host, Brendan Morahan. Good morning and welcome to the latest episode of Construction Big Breakfast. And this morning, I'm delighted to be joined by Father Patrick Devine. Patrick, you're very, very welcome. Brendan, and to your company, I am delighted to be here. And of course, Father Patrick and I go back a long, long way. Um, Father Patrick's family were the butchers, the local butchers to my family over in Roscommon. And we've come a long way from, from there. And I can honestly say that I've never had a better T-bone steak than I've got sure. out, out of Divines and French Park. And, and even better, Brendan, my mother came from the same village as you. Exactly. exactly. So, so, so there's, a, yeah. there's a link back there to Roscommon. But there's, there are other reasons why we're here together. For those of you that don't know, Father Patrick is famous in what he does. Um, obviously, he's a man of God, but he's done some great things around the world. 2013, was it? You won the Caring Institute Award? Dalai Lama the year before. Yeah, so, so you're certainly uh, famous in those parts. And, and I think that's really where I was delighted you, you joined us today because I've got to know you over the, over the years. Delighted to support Shalom. It's part of, of our CSR responsibility in the business that we do try to, to give to the community as well as, as be a good business for the people that work with us. But when I found out about what you were doing in Shalom, it really impressed me because in business, we talk about collaboration and the importance of it. But at the end of the day, that's just business and money. Shalom, and I'd like to tell me a little bit more about how it came about, but Shalom is really about collaboration in the real world between people who are in conflict, who are causing mass destruction and devastation to generations. And you go in with your organisation to seek to change it. How do you even start with that? Well, to begin with, Brendan, I, I was ordained in 1988 and I went to Eastern Africa and I was there for a few years when I encountered the genocide in Rwanda. Um, at that time, there was almost a million people who were massacred. A million and a half refugees came into Tanzania from that genocide. And we moved into the area where they were to help them. And for four years, I coordinated that work. A lot of my life has been involved in uh, development work in terms of schools and hospitals, water projects, helping lepers and so on. But over the years, I became very aware of the amount of inter-ethnic conflict that was taking place, especially in northern Kenya along the borders with uh, Somalia, Ethiopia, South Sudan and Uganda. Persistent conflict where people were being killed and maimed and displaced. Uh, and in those conflict environments, it is very difficult for social and religious values, the ones we need in life in general, like peace and truth and justice and mercy, to take deep root. Mm -hmm. It was ex nearly impossible for people to live normal lives or experience true peace. And secondly, in those environments, it was impossible to have any sustainable development because periodically schools and hospitals and various other types of uh, development needs of the people, they were inoperable. So were we forever going to pour money in a sense through a sieve addressing the symptoms or yeah. do we tackle the underlying causes? Yeah. And that was the rationale for setting up the organisation called the Shalom Centre for Conflict Resolution but who's and Reconciliation. Whose rationale? One person can't do that on his own. Oh no, what I mean it's, it's done. So how was it started? It's done in dialogue. So what we decided, we went into the conflict zones and we met the key influential opinion shapers, like the chiefs, the elders, religious leaders, women, youth, warriors. 
And I have never met anybody in those conflict zones uh, that didn't want a better future for their children, yeah, yeah. but they couldn't see a way out. And I watched a lot of well-meaning NGOs and church groups and that who were very good at addressing the symptoms, but really hadn't got the analytical skills or peace building techniques to address the underlying causes. So Brendan, just to say what we decided in consultation with the people was to set up an interreligious group of men and women from all faiths, but we set a bar that everyone should have a minimum have a master's degree in either mm. peace studies, political science, comparative, comparative religion or development. And then most of all, we didn't want anybody sitting on the fence. Anybody that joined Shalom had to make a commitment to go behind the lines and work persistently in the conflict zones. So they're not just visitors, they're not tourists. No, not tourists. They're actually rolling no, themselves. No. But I want to come back to that. Right. Going right to the beginning, how did you earn the right to get in with these chiefs so that you could start that dialogue to understand how you can deal with the cause of the problem? Well, of course, we, when I went out there first, we, we made a commitment to go to the most abandoned areas. Right. So you just don't drop in. You have to go in. People have to take time to get to know you and you get to, to get to know them. You're not coming in with a pontifical view no. condescendingly down. It's just no. to go in and begin to live among them and begin to listen to their stories. And what are their greatest needs? And of course, we all have basic human needs like food and water and shelter, protection, self-esteem, self-actualization. But to go in there and to see then with them, can we help them? And that's all. Can we help them to be the architects of their own future? We are really empowering them to be the architects of their own interdependent future of peace and coexistence. And do they want help? And of course, that's a stupid question, but did they of actually course, want it? Of course, and especially because people, you know, now with the, in this globalized world and high tech and communication, most of all, uh, parents in all cultures, they want a better future yeah. for their children, particularly in terms of education, because it's the most natural thing in the world, because education is so crucial to development. And of course, medical care is important as well, water and so on. But you must be very careful when you go in, Brendan. I have seen missionaries coming in in the past and NGOs thinking the biggest need the people had was housing or water. And often they collect money just to put down a borehole or a well or something. Yeah. And the borehole of the well becomes the biggest center of killing. So you must do your analysis well and walk slowly and tread softly with the people because remember you're walking on holy ground. Sure. Yes. Sure. But going back to this help issue, presumably it needs a deal of humility on their part to recognize that someone from outside can come in to help them. We all need help at some times, but we, we think we're self-sufficient. How did you... Or was that an issue? And if so, how did you overcome that with them? Well, the first thing I had to do, Brendan, was learn the language, actually. Okay. You know, it's very important to learn the local language and to dialogue in the same concepts that they use in their language. And of course, there's great appreciation for anybody that gets down off their high horse, to put yeah. it in that term, yeah. and, and really learns the language and begins to understand their culture and their perspective on life. And realize as you enter in that you're not coming as a know-all that knows everything. Mm. You have a lot to learn. Even as we say from a missionary point of view, um, God was there a long time before any of us arrived. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, I don't know, Brendan, if that's answered what you're No, it actually is. I'm just trying to envision yes. the first time you landed in there with this oh. mission of yours and well, how you must have had a, a number of yeah. trends and a number of failures. Mm. And was there, well, I, I, was I there a the, point in time where yeah. you realised, actually, this is going to work? I was asked to move into an area back in 1990. Now, it hadn't rained from the previous May, 
And we were in now up to November. Right. And I was asked would I go in to try and help the people because there was a lot of hunger. Um, there was no water, no running water, no roads, anything like that. And I remember, just to give you, uh, Brendan, a picture of it, mm. I had a little Suzuki car, a small little four-wheel drive, and heading off into this area, which is 18 hours away from the nearest tar road at that time, and getting a little box of food with me, a mattress, two batteries and lamps, and a mosquito net and landing into a really remote area and that night getting into on a your room, own on my own into a room and um now some of the people in that area knew there was a guy like me would be coming sometime yeah and into a room and setting up my mattress and putting up the mosquito net but that first night i remember all that was around me were rats i remember <laughs> around the place yeah. and uh, but anyhow the next day we got everything cleared out and people started gathering around and uh, you began to visit the villages and talk to the people. And what I found was there was an enormous amount of children dying from malaria. And the first thing ever I did was, after getting a room um, uh, contextualised in terms of equipment and so yeah. on, was to buy a microscope because there was no way of detecting the malaria. And got a guy trained and we started, that was the beginning of what and now is a modern day hospital. So you, you buy a microscope? And then you have to train someone up. Was that person a local person? A local person. Okay. And uh, and then we began to develop a clinic. And the next thing was to build uh, two little wards. They only had they only had twelve beds, but you know for women and for men. Um, then after that, uh, it was obvious there was a huge need for education. There were a lot of primary schools, but they had no books, no desks, or anything. So we began to rehabilitate those schools and this is done in dialogue with uh, with the people and whatever level of education you meet in there and i think it's important to um make the point just because people don't have education it doesn't mean they lack intelligence no, sure. and they're well able to understand and begin the to context. organize their village um so after that uh, i got a convent built because it was important to get people in that could really deliver. So we got nuns in who had medical qualifications and home economics and domestic science. We built a women and children's development center for sewing and typing. And, and I mean, just to mention the sewing, Brendan, the next thing we started bringing back magazines and we got the foot machines for okay. sewing. Now, even in church, the fashion improved a lot as the weeks <laughs> went by and it was great. And one day then didn't I, um, come across a group who were interested in setting up a secondary school somewhere in a remote area. And just to give you an idea, one way or another, I got the people out to look at our area. Now they needed 300 acres of land because the students would have to feed themselves. They were aware that we were living in an environment where it didn't rain for six months. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, they said they could get diviners, you know, a diviner. Yeah, course, yeah, yeah. And we did, and we found the water, and there's a wonderful school going now, uh, operate, um, operational in that area for uh, 600 students, 300 boys, 300 girls, mm -hmm. and 300 are boarders and 300 are lay students, because we have people coming from a wide catchment area, but we also didn't want to neglect the local yeah. population. Uh, it was uh, around the end of that uh, that time then that I moved on from that area. So I was going to ask, so from what you've described, that was just an area of need as opposed to yes. an area of conflict. And or, I was there in five years. For five, I was there for five years helping with the development. And but it, I'm just trying to draw the link now with the conflict. Are, are you saying that because of the need of the area, there was implicit conflict because people were looking to take from each other? Or 
did it evolve in your thinking that said, right, we've solved well, that problem, evolved, there's a broader... Brendan, there were two types of conflict we, were de we often deal with, and just to point them out, one is known as manifest conflict, yeah. where there's killing and maiming and displacement. The other is to look at environments, what we call, have structural conflict, where there's a, an inequity in the distribution of resources and institutions. And we went into an area, what we, an area of structural violence, where there was need for better medical education okay. facilities, law and order as well, judiciary and so on. But just west of me, in 1994, the genocide broke out in uh, Rwanda. And I was about eight hours from the Rwandan border. And I remember the morning very well that the genocide started. Uh, and everything stopped, all traffic going west towards Rwanda. And uh, I'm talking about traffic on bush roads, not tar roads. Sure. So we all knew there was something wrong. And next thing we heard in the world news that the refugees, a million and a half, were pouring into Tanzania. So we got together missionaries from around the area, about maybe the area, the size of County Roscommon, yeah. maybe 70 by 50. I don't know if Roscommon yeah. is that yeah. big. I might be overstating <laughs> Roscommon. But and, and we all got, we said, we got to go over to help the people because they were coming in and a lot of them su suffering from terrible trauma and distress, the usual post-traumatic stress uh, yeah. disorder. And we began to uh, coordinate the pastoral care and we were meeting people from all sides. And I mean, you could see the anguish and there was a lot of weapons in the area. So you began to ask yourself, what was underpinning a conflict like this starting in the middle of Africa? And certainly from a, a religious point of view, you'd have to say that blood of tribalism was much stronger than the water of baptism right. in that area. But I, I became very conscious about it and I began to realise that we as church and NGOs were very deficient in uh, the analytical skills and the peace building techniques. None of us were qualified Because you're solving areas. the problems or helping deal with we the were, problems rather than going yes, back to the root cause. And exactly. We were good at helping with the symptoms. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, conflict will continue to yeah. recur unless you address the underlying causes. Uh, after that then, Brendan, I ended up uh, being elected into administrative roles and into a wider area that included um, Kenya and up along the borders with Somalia, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Uganda. And when I went into those areas, I began to come across a lot uh, more conflict of a different type, which was conflict between uh, various tribes or ethnic groups is the more political correct yeah. statement. So at the moment, Shalom is working in 28 conflict environments in Eastern Africa. Right. And that's dealing with inter-ethnic conflict between various uh, tribes mm -hmm. and also um, trying to prevent and transform religious ideological extremism, particularly right. in the slums around Nairobi, which are the breeding grounds uh, for terrorism, especially with Al-Shabaab coming out of Somalia. And to give you an idea of the events that happened, we have had attacks on malls and hotels. They also attacked in 2015, Garissa University. Um, 147 students were killed. 61 of them were decapitated altogether, their heads taken off their bodies. And the rest were put on their phones, put on phones to parents while their throats were being slit. So I, I met one of the priests who was down at the morgue and he was just telling me, and this like is, uh, you know, trying to put bodies and heads, but the trauma of that. Yeah. And, and in, we know what students are. We were all students yeah. in yeah. universities and all that. It was so innocent. Yes. And, uh, but that's just some of the work that we do. And there must be events like that that make you wonder whether you're really making a difference. What really strikes me with Shalom is the investment in research and training thereafter which is clearly really important. What about the research into how an organisation like yours becomes sustainable? Because you're against a really strong tide, aren't you? 
in terms of the conflict. Yes. Yes. Um, Brendan, we're, we're growing and um, it's like even for a company, um, yeah. okay, for your own company, yeah. Invent, and your consultation and helping various companies in construction to progressively advance and grow. There are four things, and I mentioned them before um, at a, the fundraiser we had up at yeah. Moore Park. It's very important, first of all, that you perform. And it's the same with the people. You've got to perform. They yeah. want to know that you're real because they have been parasitically abused by a lot of um, organizations over the years that come in and use their cause sometimes to meet the needs of the management in, um, yeah. in a lot of NGOs and so on. So you've got to perform with the people. Um, there should be growth as well because no conflict is isolated. They're all interconnected within a conflict cycle. Uh, thirdly, it, it's very, very important that um, you're able to collaborate and to work on an even keel with the people and the resources of the local communities because they have structures you're working within their government structures mm -hmm. and within the the state government structure and fourthly it's so important that we are all authentic and authenticity will always come through and i have no doubt about this that in terms of performance growth um a the, um, collaboration. collaboration and authenticity yeah. those four factors are pervading your company as well as your engagement and that's interesting when you talk about those four factors. In a business, you can choose the environments that you operate in. Mm. With, your, with you, you have to go where the need is greatest. Sure. So there are clearly going to be cultural differences that you need to assess Absolutely. and address very quickly. Sure. How do you go about that? Well, um, first of all, I said about the language. Yeah. And uh, of course, you have to have, do some study of the culture and their worldview on life, whether it be about religion, human relationships, or the ordinary things about marriage or how, how they structure society in terms yeah. of economics. Uh, when you're going in then to do the work on conflict transformation. And this, I think, also can apply to businesses. There are four key levels we approach. Um, each culture, each ethnic community, when we're trying to transform the conflict with their neighbours. Number one is dealing with the individual level, because the individual is very, very important yeah. from a spiritual point of view, a psychological point of view, and an emotional point of view, because it's the same in this company. Everybody has a spiritual aspect, a psychological mm -hmm. and emotional. So there's transformation always needed at that level. Secondly, is at the level of relationships. Um, how we behave towards each other, uh, how we communicate, and how we stereotype. Because this word stereotype has gone off the airways quite a bit, but we all have um, ideas forming oh, in our head, yeah, yeah. and there can be biases and prejudice and so on. Thirdly is we should have institutional factors in place that really can help the people meet their basic human needs and actualize their potential institutions from medical education, judiciary, legal redress, and even just ordinary things like sporting and cultural outlets of entertainment. And fourthly, you have to look at culture, the overall culture of an institution or an environment to see what aspects of their culture are legitimizing violence. And sometimes culture legitimizes violence, mm -hmm. that it's okay to yeah. uh, undermine basic human rights. So we should have a great respect for human rights. In terms of a fifth level we are dealing with at the moment is trying to counter um, radicalization and extremism, is looking at religion, the institutions of religion, uh, how the divine message of revelation is interpreted and is actualized in the community. And people often ask me, uh, is religion the underlying cause of conflict? And I'm not just saying this in the defense of religion, yeah. but it's not. But religion at the same time becomes a major factor 
causing conflict or energizing conflict when it's energized itself yeah. by quantitative institutional uh, membership as distinct from yeah. qualitative transformation spiritually. In other words, when the institutions become more important than the divine message, now we have issues. And that cuts across a lot of the problems that are in religion today. Yeah, interesting. Now, you're, you're very focused on the continent of Africa. Yes. But the needs and the solutions are required around the world. How, if at all, are you sharing your learning from Africa with the rest of the world? Well, since Shalom was set up, it has got a um, huge profile, particularly from the International Caring Award. And I'd like to say, in terms of the International Caring Award, it's about the organisation, not about me. Sure. And since then, um, universities all over the world, in the Western world in particular, have invited me to come and to share on the methodology. So I'm here in England at the moment because there's a dialogue going on with Durham University that have come up to share with their students and uh, their staff about this methodology. I have given lectures in Northern Ireland at Queen's University and we have a partnership there with the George Mitchell Institute uh, and mainly it was just about the transformation methods and how applicable it would be in Northern Ireland because if you look at a lot of the countries where we have conflict and I'm just thinking of Northern Ireland yeah. at the moment you can look at it from three paradigmal anal analytical perspectives one is the issue of realism about power and power is always about achieving your interests and security. And if you cannot achieve it by manipulative persuasion, people revert to threats and yeah, sanctions yeah, yeah, yeah. and ultimately to coercion. The other way of looking at what's causing conflict is looking at the structural inequity in the distribution of knowledge and resources to helping people. And if there's massive distribution in terms of uh, massive um, inequity yeah. in the distribution of institutional resources, you'll have conflict. And thirdly is to look at it from what we call conflict research, that there's more than enough in these environments to meet everybody's need, but not to meet everybody's greed. Mm -hmm. And that if we manipulated these env environments positively in terms of decision, decision making, if we, manipulated, if we manipulated these environments positively in terms of decision making, communication, sharing of resources, a lot of conflict could be avoided. Now, America have got very interested, and I'm right. on my way over uh, the second time from Harvard University, and they want to do, about to do a presentation and also to give a class to their students that are dealing with conflict issues and uh, about public policy. Uh, last year, I was in San Diego. I try and do one a year. Right. I don't want to be over there too much. Right. So I usually do 10, and a half, 10 to 10 and a half months in Africa and six weeks out fundraising and giving lectures. Right. The University of Texas, DePaul, Chicago, where else? Then I was down in Washington as well, um, giving a talk with diplomats and I think people who are very involved in the security intelligence operation in terms of countering radicalization. Which is clearly important. What I was going to ask, with all of that academic learning, right. where is the action? Can you see action that's following it? You're actually putting feet on the ground in Africa. But do you see the evidence that the research that you've carried out and you've imparted through lectures is now actually been acted upon. Well, of course, the, the, the sharing of knowledge is very important at the moment to get the ideas sure. right and the methodology right. Uh, in terms of Africa, we are building up our bases in these countries. For example, in America, we are registered as a 501c3. In the Republic of Ireland, we're registered as well as a charity. And in Northern Ireland, the UK, we needed a charity number for the UK. And we're building up the pool of um, support people and resources like yourself, Brendan, and the wonderful people around London who've got involved in this because 
now in the interconnected world we're in, what happens out in Africa if we don't deal with it out there yeah. or any place else in the world, it comes home to bite here. Sure. But we need to share the knowledge because it's applicable and the methodology is applicable to all aspects of conflict uh, transformation and conflict resolution across business, across family life and really preventing conflict. Of course, preventing is much more important sometimes than the solving. If we can prevent, we don't have to yeah. waste money yeah. on the solving. Sure. So, Brendan, did I, did I, did, was there something else you wanted me to no, put that, on that? No, that, that's, that's answered it perfectly. I think the, the issue for me, is that about 30 years now, if I've understood you correctly, Father, that you've been in Africa? Yes. About 30 years. Right. What, what do you know now that you wish you'd known 30 years ago that would have accelerated the progress that you've made, Ashula? So I went to Africa, and of course, what was driving me to go out to Africa? Mainly it was about bringing the reconciliation of the divine to the world. Mm -hmm. And that means reconciliation with God, with your neighbor, with yourself and with the environment. But when I got out there, while I certainly knew the Lord in prayer, but to bring about this reconciliation, I, what I lacked going out was the skill sets and the training on that aspect. I was very well trained in terms of evangelization and mm -hmm. proclaiming the word and interpreting. But to bring about peace is not easy. And I'm very conscious of uh, even a line out of the gospel on the entry of Jesus to Jerusalem, if I may, because Jesus mm. is present in the Quran. In all religions, you'll find Jesus somewhere or other has inf a big influence. But he looked down on Jerusalem one day and he wept. And it says this in um, Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 19, verse 41, that he looked down on Jerusalem and he wept and said the following. He said, if only today you would know what makes for peace. Because mm. peace is not easy to bring about. And it's not about shaking hands. And I mean, people can be in the same room. They may not be physically fighting, but all that exists between them is negative peace. And yeah. negative peace is just the absence of violence. While what we're looking for is to bring about positive peace where all sides are mutually interested in the well-being, security and development of each other. And let's bring this to a close on a positive. Give me an example of where you've seen that positive peace come about as a, as a consequence of Shalom's involvement. Well, there are many examples, but let me just use one, let one Bre Brendan. Um, just south of uh, Lake Turkana, the Samburu and the Turkana tribe uh, ethnic communities have been in conflict for well over 100 years. So we spent about 18 months on both sides, really working with the key influential opinion shapers, as I said, the chiefs, the elders and so on, and uh, working with them about a dynamic and to hear their voice. And of course, they all wanted peace. Yeah. So we began training them with the analytics in terms of what's causing conflict, the transformation methodology, and what would be involved in reconciliation. Because there are four pillars to reconciliation. One is you must, first of all, achieve negative peace, then address issues of truth, or perceptions of truth, then issues of justice and injustice, and issues then of mercy. You have to bring about mercy. So in that area, after a two-year, um, very thorough insertion, in, in those communities on both sides and doing the research under Professor Amoka, the Quaker, he, he's a Quaker, sorry, doing research under Professor Amoka, who's a Quaker. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we really did it thoroughly, went back with the findings of the research. They accepted the findings. Now they're conceptually thinking the same. We began to bring them together. So they agreed on, Brendan, first and foremost. They would open a 26 kilometer road between them, repair it, so that they were able to move over and back. That they would set up a joint market. 
very important for trading, mm -hmm. the economy, political economy, and their agreement to set up inter-ethnic, inter-religious schools between them. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, from once we get them the to that level, you get them out the window, yeah. as I do say, to inter-ethnic education, then we really help develop the schools. And with, with the backup of desks and books and solar energy became a big factor because there's yeah. no electricity up there, Brendan. And uh, you're, you're in those environments and children go home at night, seven o'clock it gets dark. All they have is the firelight to read and write. But with the solar energy on, the lighting, they're able to be back in the school seven to nine and some of them in the morning from five to half six. Well, look, Father, as I feared, I was knew I'd be oh like dro drawing hen's teeth out of you. But before we finish... What about how are we going to raise <laughs> what funds? I, what, what I would like to ask is two things, actually. Yeah. Firstly, <laughs> what did you have for your breakfast this morning? Pardon? I had a bowl of porridge, a bowl of porridge. And a, a slice of toast. Very good. And a lovely piece of butter. And I was dining at the home of a wonderful man here called Andy Rogers. Who will come on to in a minute. And, and his you, wife, Bridget. And if you were in Africa, what would you be eating well, for breakfast? Well, if you're very fortunate, an egg is a great thing, egg. Brendan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even up in the semi-arid desert where we work, you can normally get an egg um, and try and get some tea, of course. Your liquid is very yeah. important. Sometimes up in those environments, you wouldn't believe you can find goats. Really? And the goat can survive where a lot of other animals can it. Okay. So, you know, you, you adapt as you move along. But no T-bone steaks. No T-bone no steaks at all, Brendan. And look, the final question, look, I'm delighted you were able to join us. Yeah. could have spoken for hours, but maybe most importantly, you need funding. You need support. You need people to get involved. Uh, we're delighted to do what little bit we can do. And I know you've got, you mentioned Andy Rogers, there are, there's a good network of people in London now supporting you, but I know you could, you could do with more. How could people, if they're watching this podcast, have discovered Shalom for the first time, how could they help you do more of what you do work, do best? Brendan, first, I cannot let this go by without saying that we in Shalom are very grateful to your company. You're really welcome. You're welcome. You've been with us for years and you have been promoting the idea and you have been explaining the work and the, the connectedness between the people in Africa and here. Um, how we need, we need funding for our work, of course. And uh, in London, we have a wonderful group. Um, you're on the committee mm -hmm. uh, with Andy Rogers, um, Seamus Carr, Seamus mm -hmm. McGinley, Martin McAtamney, yeah. and a lot of other people on the wings of that. Mm -hmm. So what we need is, of course, uh, donations to our work. Um, to spread the word as well and when I'm over to help me to meet as many people as possible to explain it and I hope I have yeah. explained it reasonably well and um, we'll be having an event again later this year but in the immediate Brendan uh, you know how to get the money out to us in Africa you and your committee here mm -hmm. so anybody that would wish to make a donation if they give it to you yeah. we are very very confident and grateful to you Brendan yeah. and your team for forwarding it on to us in Africa. People can look at our website. There's yeah. so much there about the work. And um, Brendan, well, it's based on those four things, performance and growth and uh, um, authenticity and collaboration. Well, look, on that point, we will make sure that we put a link into this podcast to the Shalom Charity. And as Father Patrick said, if people are interested in supporting either financially or in kind, please do contact me and we'll make sure that we point you in the right direction. And can I, can I finish with one point before you say that, Brendan? Just to say, finally, out of every pound that comes to us in Africa, and this is a fact, only 7% goes in, and sometimes less. Some years it has been six and five, but seven, just to be fair, mm -hmm. and since I think it'll be 70 sure goes into administration. 93% goes directly into the piecework and the educational development program. Which is important. 
Okay, well, look, Father, really appreciate you joining us. And hopefully we'll see you again soon. All the best. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. And hopefully you'll tune in next time. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com, where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.